There you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. Our guest today is Mr. Michael Hawk. This is one dynamic individual. His story is impactful. This episode is strewn with words of advice and wisdom that only a person like Michael can derive. He's a great guy, a great supporter, and I'm very humbled and proud to call him friend. And I appreciate all of you who are listening to Straight Out of Combat Radio. Thank you. It means a lot. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic. We're empowering. We're American. Save us all burn it down. Our veteran guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero, is Mr. Michael Hawk. I met Michael two years ago through various channels, and he's been a huge inspiration for me personally and a big supporter of ours behind the scenes. Michael is a retired Special Forces combat commander. He is known for his work on television and shows such as Man, Woman, Wild, many of you have seen that, and One Man Army. He has written a dozen books and has created dozens of survival products. He was rated in seven languages, holds not one, but two black belts, and has a master's degree. He is married, haven't met his wife yet, but I'm sure she's lovely. He has three sons and two grandkids, and I got to tell you, He's got to be the youngest looking granddad that I have ever seen. So it's got to be good genes into his mindset. You know, the guy's training all the time. Michael currently works for the DOS doing CSAR work in a war zone. We can talk maybe a little bit about that as we get into the conversation. But anyhow, I've been trying to get Michael here for a long time. He's a busy guy. I am blessed to have him here on the show. Welcome, Michael Hawk. Thank you, John, and happy to be here. And howdy, everyone listening. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. So, you know, let's just get right down to it. We were just smoking and joking off this recording, and there's a lot to talk about. What we want to know is we want to know all about you, Michael. You know, tell us a little bit about your childhood. Okay. Um, (laughs) Basically, very, very typical, I think, story in that, you know, we grew up poor, maybe a little bit poorer than than most. The old man was in the army. The mom was, you know, a a waitress. And it was Vietnam time. They split up when I was young. And so it was pretty much my mom trying to raise us. And, uh, you know, we bounced around from house to house, often didn't have electricity or running water at periods of time, you know, living out in the country in shacks and stuff, you know, traditional outhouses and whatnot in the wintertime. Uh, some people still have those, can appreciate that. But I had a brother and two sisters, and somehow or another, my my family managed to get us raised, get us growed, and uh, we all went our di- different ways, and, and everybody has managed to become a decent human being despite everything. So, uh, that's pretty much the story in a nutshell. So would you say, even though, you know, you, your papa left at a young age, would you say that he was a mentor of yours, you know, making your way to the to the service? Well, yes and no. In my personal experience, it was interesting in that he was in and out of my life at different periods. And I've always credited him with being there at crucial times that saved me from going down a really different and perhaps darker road. 
So in that way, yes, he, he was a partial role model, but also there were other men that came into my life at what I consider now in hindsight, just the right moment to keep me from either being dead or being in jail and kept me on, on a good path. So it's one of those things where I think now that I'm an older fellow, I can look back and say that good role models come into your life exactly when you need them. If you're looking, if you're paying attention, and if you are, you reach out that hand and accept the help. I think that's what makes a big difference for those people who go through troublesome periods in their life, whether they're children or adults. That's an awesome viewpoint, Michael, because you know what? And I, I mentioned that you inspire me because what you basically just said is, you know, accept what comes your way and the things that come your way that you need happen at the right time. It's all about manifesting. And, I, you know, I get it, man. I didn't realize I have a brother and two sisters, too. And my dad was an army guy and uh, I get it. So we're just glad yeah. you're we're just glad you're here, man. So so tell us about how you made it to that army recruitment office. Well, the skinny version is that I was in junior high and we were very poor at the time. And, uh, you know, I was so poor that, you know, I, we didn't have run of water and I was kind of dirty going to school. And basically a lot of the kids that were better off wouldn't hang out with me and wouldn't talk to me. So I found myself hanging out with the kids who were basically, you know, smoking dope and, you know, getting in a little bit of trouble because they all came from broken homes and, and troubled backgrounds. Even though I was a straight-A student and in the chess club, um, these were the only people that would accept me because of the way I dressed. Right. So they became my friends, and inadvertently, I end up becoming sort of a leader of the group. And then there was a big fight on the school grounds, and uh, I ended up being caught in the middle of it and being expelled from, what was it, seventh grade. And, you know, that was just the last month of seventh grade. And and then they said over the summer, they sent me the report card saying that they were going to recycle me or repeat grades, however that is, basically flunk me back. And I just decided I, I wasn't going to have it. So I dropped out of school at that point, never went back, hung out during the summer. And then I realized when my friends went back to school, man, I got to do something. So I started looking for work. I got very lucky in those days. You know, you really couldn't get away with it now because of child labor laws, but I was able to become a bagger at a grocery store. And from going to that every day, I was pretty much the only young kid there working. So it wasn't hard to shine. And I just, I had a good work ethic. I worked hard. And so they bumped me up to a stalker and then cashier and then the assistant manager, believe it or not. And they offered me a scholarship to go to college. And I was you know, completely flattered. And when I did some soul searching, I decided, you know, I know I need an education to break this cycle of poverty and, and make my life better. I mean, I had been shot. I'd been stabbed. I had friends that were uh, killed and friends that were in jail for killing. And I could see that this cycle of poverty was only going to end up one way, dead or in jail. So I knew I needed education, but I just didn't see myself being a manager of a grocery store. So I uh, went and applied for the military and in those days, they would accept, I think it was, two non-high school graduates per year. And so I took the test and I scored well above the officer level, even though I had no high school. And so they made the exception, allowed me into the Army. And that's really, that break is what changed my whole life path. So that led me to, once I got in, they started offering me school after school. I kept thinking, no way, I'll make it, but I'll try. And I kept passing before you know it. 
I became this crazy Green Beret with, you know, medicine, communications, intelligence, being an officer and all that. And uh, it all started because uh, I was blessed to have a chance. I worked hard and and took the opportunity that presented itself. That's awesome. So you, you went to Fort Benning then. Obviously, you're 11 Bravo. No, 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 no. Actually, because I did not have any high school, I knew I needed some sort of trade. So I actually uh, was a radio operator and they sent me to Fort Knox for my basic training. Ironically, that's where I happened to be born was Fort Knox. So that wow. was interesting. And then I went to I did go to Benning for jump school because I was going to be assigned to Ranger Battalion. And then I went to uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia for my signal school. And then I ended up getting assigned to a cavalry unit, which was cool because I learned all about helicopters and tanks and armor and mortars and infantry and scouts. Then when I spent a couple years there, the special forces recruiter found me and said, pretty much I fit the exact mold of what they were looking for, somebody who had you know three to four years experience, was a sergeant, had been to jump school, had been a PLDC, had uh, high scores on the GT and on the PT test, you know, the physical training and your your ASVAB and your um, what they called back in those days, perhaps you remember the SQT, your skill qualification oh, yeah. test. Yep. So I was in the top 10% of everything. So they asked me to join special forces. And uh, I said, man, you know, I don't know. What are those guys? And I said, I've heard they're like snake eaters and baby killers. And of course, they laughed at me. And I said, well, let me do some research. I read a couple of books, the most significant one being Colonel Aaron Banks from OSS to Green Berets. And when I read that book about those men, I knew that that's where I belong. That's who I wanted to be when I grow up. And so I joined. Again, didn't think I'd make it. I think in those days it was before they had their selection and assessment. So it's about 360 people or something. And at the end of it, only about, I think, uh, 63 of us made it. And then by the time we all started the school, I was one of only three guys that made it through the whole course, you know, in one go. Other guys got recycled if they were worthy. But, you know, that's a pretty hefty, uh, you know, attrition rate. So uh, there I was. On my left was this perfect human. I'll never forget his name. I won't say it on air, but he was just this extremely handsome, intelligent, fit guy, could do everything with a smile, never stressed, always got, you know, 100% on everything. And then on my right was probably the ugliest guy I've ever seen. <laughs> Looked like the most misshapen, unfortunate, dumb looking guy ever. But they both made it and, and it taught me a lesson. I was somewhere in the middle and I realized that, you know, it, in anything in life, you truly can't judge the book by its cover because it, it always comes down to what is inside, what is their heart and what's their mind. And that's what I saw. And so those guys and myself all shared one thing in common, and that was the will to win, to never quit. And the only way we were ever going to quit is if we were dead. And that was it. And that was all. Yeah, there you go. You know, so, you know, before we get to your deployments, Michael, can you think of, I know you've got a lot of training, man. Can you think of one instance, one particular instance that sticks out in your mind where everything just dawned on you? That's a great example about not judging the book, but can you think of one thing in training that just was like an aha moment? Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I'll tell you what, I, I'll, I'll tell you two, one, one, one training and one combat. So we were in training and it was like near the very end of the, the special forces pipeline. And we were in a guerrilla warfare phase. And that's, 
you know, like six weeks out there doing training and 30 days in the field. And it's pretty tough going. And, you know, you're, it was winter time, which, you know, I, I'm not a winter guy. I hate it, even though I spent three years on a winter warfare team. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm in this little hide site, keeping an eye on the enemy. We're going to make an attack on these guys in the next day. And I'm, I'm the scout guy. So when they roll up the next in the middle of the night, like, you know, four or five in the morning, I'm supposed to tell them what's going on and sit everybody in position. So I'm sitting there and it starts pouring down rain. And it's got to be like 33 degrees. So just above freezing and this little hole that I'm hiding in just fills with water, dude. And I'm sitting there with just my nose and my eyes sticking out of the water. I can't move because there's enemy activity all around me and I'm shivering and I'm freezing. And then off in the distance, I could hear this train going by and I could see it through a break in the woods. One of those Amtrak trains with the yeah. lights on and everybody's in there drinking hot drinks and eating food and laughing and families. And it struck me. Wow. I could be on that train right now having a life. Why am I here miserable and suffering? I think <laughs> I'm, I don't want this. I want that. And then I started to get up and then something hit me and it said, you know what? If you get up and quit now, you'll be quitting for the rest of your life. And something about that voice in my head said, you know what? Dude, it's going to be light in about two hours. I'm just going to suck it up and stay put. And I did. And it was a turning point for me because from that point on, I just said, you know what? I'm never, ever going to quit no matter how hard it gets. If I believe in it, I'm going to stick to it no matter what. And that's been with me the whole time. That's an awesome story, man. And yeah, I mean, the way you described it definitely can relate to that because there are times in military training when you're wondering, WTF, why am I doing this? Why am I here? We kind of did the same thing looking at, you know, airliners flying over, thinking about all the people partying on board, thinking, here we are out here on guard duty in the middle of freaking nowhere. And and gosh, we could be on that plane, but I hear you. And you know what? What great advice. So let's turn to your deployment. You know, let's let's tell tell us that story, but tell us about your deployments if you can, as much as you can. Well, in a general sense, I've worked or deployed in nine different war zones. So about five of them were as a contractor, and this was long before 9-11, like working in Azerbaijan and working in Colombia and working in Haiti and working in Sierra Leone. So when 9-11 happened, you know, I had already been in a whole lot of wars. I mean, Colombia, 96, 97, that was like the height of the drug war. We're getting an, an average of three firefights a week. I mean, it was insane. Right. Um, when I was in Sierra Leone, I mean, that was an entire country that was overthrown and taken by rebels where, you know, I almost died the most in one day up until Freetown fell was three times. And then all of a sudden when Freetown fell, I'm sitting here with thousands of people who were trying to evacuate and save their lives because they're, they're chopping up women and children, burning people alive. It was horrible and brutal. And I almost got killed five times in one day. And that was all prior to 9-11, right? So when 9-11 happened and I got called back and, you know, had to mobilize for war and go through all special force training as an older guy and an officer, I started doing really well with all my special forces officer candidate peers, but I was an old guy and they were all wondering where I got all this experience. And I explained to them, I was from combat here and there, and they didn't know what to make of it. So I actually got called on the carpet by the colonel of the schoolhouse and they were going to kick me out of special forces for having too much combat experience, believe it or not. So I said, whoa, whoa, Colonel. You know, I mean, I only work for the U.S. government, only for the embassies. I'll, I'll 
go home, get my stuff out of the safe, and I'll show you. And they allowed me, and I came and I showed them my embassy ID card and my badges from the State Department and you know my awards from the UN and the embassy. And they said, okay, all right, you're good to go. You could stay. But that's how unknown combat contracting was prior to 9-11. Now it's you know, a dime a dozen. You know, almost everybody out there has done some. And then, of course, with the military, I was uh, you know, sent to war for Afghanistan, and I worked in El Salvador where we got shot at, but that kind of stuff wasn't tracked. I worked at in Turkey where I got shot at, and that stuff wasn't tracked. And so it's uh, and even in Thailand, where when when we were over there training their special forces and their Delta and their SEALs, you know those guys had combat engagements where they'd bring bodies back in, but that stuff didn't count as warfare because it wasn't declared war. So right. that's kind of the summation of my my combat experience, both as a contractor and as a soldier. Now, wasn't there a story? I know something somewhere I read or saw about you in particular, the team you were with. And I think it was an African, had something to do with a flight. You flew in somewhere or you you basically had to hoodwink the terrorists to get out of Dodge, something like that. Do you recall anything like that? Man, you know, the, the irony is there are literally dozens and dozens of stories like that. Sierra Leone was particularly crazy. I mean, we had a million dollar price on our head. The rebels and our forces were called ECOMOG. And it's kind of like, imagine, if you will, an African NATO, except there's no standardization of uniform. Okay. So you can't tell the bad guys from the good guys. And the good guys would go in there and they'd take over villages and make the poor villagers dig up diamonds because you could just kick dirt and find diamonds there. And then the bad guys would come in and, and take over villages and make them uh, dig up diamonds. So the poor villagers were caught in the middle of, of the greed of all of them. Right. But the, the bad guys were particularly known for like, you know, chopping uh, women and children up, making the kids kill their parents while they sing songs and chopping them up with dull machetes or cutting open pregnant women and gambling if a, if a boy or girl would fall out yeah it was in fact uh sierra leone where i i more than a few times had to use a little bit of of trickery to kind of uh fool the bad guys into letting me go and that was just you know swift thinking on the spot out of desperation not because i was super genius or creative or anything it was just scared for my life and trying to think fast yeah, I had read a story like that, you know, you know, and you don't want to say fascinating. You just, you know, you sometimes you have to think quick in situations like that. So can you think of, you know, another instance in combat that was like, holy cow, this is the real thing. And I know you, you saw that before 9-11, but anything after 9-11? Of course, man. You know, there, there's so many stories that go on like that. But I'll say one that I think has a little bit of perhaps um edification for the listeners. And that was a story. I was going through a hard time emotionally with some things going on back home. And we were, you know, caught in the middle of a firefight. And, you know, I, I took a shelter behind some rock formation. And I'm sitting here thinking about my problems at home while people are not very far away shooting at me, trying to kill me. And fortunately, a round went real close and shattered some rock, which scattered some debris in my face. And it was kind of like getting a good old fashioned pimp slap. And it woke me up. And I'm like, dude, wake up, forget about all that stuff at home, focus on what's going on right now here, or you might not see another day. And that was a real epiphany for me where I realized that, you know, the things that go on at home really do impact people and can actually distract them to the point of, of causing them to get killed in battle. So whenever I talk to young people now about, hey, get your mind clear before you go into battle, that's exactly what I mean. Whatever's going on in the world, whatever you feel you have to 
set that off to the side and focus on the here and now, your teammates to your left and right, get through this battle, live another day, and then you can handle the problems another time. But if you don't make it, then, hey, all your problems are solved anyway. So I thought that was a really interesting epiphany because I never thought it would happen to me. But I see if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. It gave me a great understanding and I think made me a better leader. So there you go. And another good tip, you know, focus, 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 especially on things that were life and death, you know, is in the is in the mix. So with every deployment, and I know you're you're technically deployed again, with every deployment, there's always the transition period coming home. You know, before you got involved with your current situation there, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about your transition back into the world, what that was like for you? Well, I mean, I'll just kind of spell it out because uh, the summation at the top was a little bit unclear for people who might not uh, get the vernacular. I basically do combat search and rescue for the government in a war zone right now. And, and I'm thankful to be able to do it at my age. I'm blessed to be working with amazing teammates and, and the mission that we're here to support and the people are all wonderful. So that's a, a great blessing. But there's you know a legitimate threat going on out there. And that's just part of what we all accept to do the job, which I think is for the greater good. Now, that aside, um, I will say as an older guy, I've kind of learned to take a big picture approach and it helps me to put things in perspective so I could try to normalize myself to fit back into society when I return. But when I first came back from a war zone, I found that I was very angry very bitter at all the people that had died and all the bad guys that had killed him and how horrible things were. And I found myself actually like looking for fights, looking for trouble. And, and I wasn't in a good place. And once I got in a fight with a couple of folks who are much bigger than me, but you know, fortunately for me, they, they lost all three of them at once. And so I realized I'm, I'm not in a good place. And I, and I, checked out for a while. And, and thankfully, I was blessed to be able to just go out in the desert, spend six months and get my head together, write some books and, and get and purge all of that anger and animosity out of me. And then another time I came back uh, and literally like the day before I came back home, we had a massive firefight, a lot of guys, you know, shot and wounded and dead. And you know, I got back home a few days later and it was, you know, Christmas time and I'm sitting here walking through the mall with my young sons at the time holding their hands and just the shock of the difference, the stark contrast between a few days ago being in a firefight, people dying in my arms and, and now I'm in the mall shopping for Santa Claus things with my boy's hands in mine. I found it a very rough transition, realizing that most of these people have no idea what just happened, certainly not what's going on in the world. And then as I walked and I thought, it, it dawned on me that, you know what? I'm glad they don't know. I'm glad they don't have to know. That's part of the reason why I do that, so they don't have to know. And in that respect, it made me grateful to be able to do it. It made me thankful to be able to be back home and it made me a better person to help understand and put it on perspective. So now I look at it like, you know, people are people all over the world, you know, and people are going to do good and people are going to do bad. And when bad people do bad, there's got to be good people to, to stop them. And some of those people aren't going to make it when they try to stop them. And it's because of those good people who willing to take that risk that hopefully 
allow so many more folks to have a good life, to have a quality of existence and peace. And at the end of the day, it's it's not the war that makes the world go round. It's the peace. It's the business. It's the day-to-day. It's the families. It's the friends. So I look at it like we are simply as soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, no, no offense meant to any of my uh, brethren and sistren um, out there in the forces. The bottom line is that the handful of people who volunteer to serve simply say that I believe in something greater than myself and I'm willing to risk my own life so that other people can have it better. And in that respect, that's how I now can transition back and forth after my deployments. I just realized, okay, you know, this is one aspect of life, just one, but there's so much more. And that's what I'm thankful for. And that's what I'm going back to. And that's what helps me to adjust. I just remind Everybody, especially my my brothers and sisters who are going through a dark time, maybe they lost somebody or they felt like they could have done something different that might have had a different outcome and somebody might still be here. It's like, look, you know, there's always people out there who love you, people who you care for, and you mean more to them to stay than if you go. And if you go, the people you love the most are the people who are going to hurt the most. So I always say, look, when you're hurting, it's okay. We all hurt. The deal is reach out. Let them know. Don't be afraid. It's the same bravery that you use to face the enemy. You got to use that same bravery and strength to say, I hurt. I need help, please. And that makes all the difference in the world. So I hope those out there that are suffering can remember that somebody loves you. Reach out to them. Reaching out to them will make their entire life so much better because they'll know, wow, Johnny or Janie reached out to me when they're about to pop it. And I was able to keep them there because they came to me and they'll be thankful for that the rest of their lives. So that's what I say to anybody out there suffering, you know, speak up, let someone know. That is some of the greatest advice I think that you, that you can give anybody, you know, that love will overcome whatever that fear is or whatever that anxiety Remarkable. I mean, that's just that's just life experience and life lesson right there. And and thanks for putting that out there, Michael. You know, a lot of people take things for granted. I know that you're one of those guys that doesn't. And you know, to say that you really enjoy survival is like a huge understatement. One of our mutual friends, Leanne, she basically saw you for the first time on television. She says, "Did you see Michael Hawks in your network?" I said, "Yeah." I, I tell me about him. I didn't even know. And she goes. That guy is phenomenal. And I, she said, go watch his show. And that's what I did before we even met. Tell us about the show, Man, Woman, Wild. Because, you know, a lot of people remember it and a lot of people still watch it. Well, I mean, the thing is, the Man, Woman, Wild was sort of a culmination of, of a life path. So being so poor coming up, you know, we had to scrounge and we had to scrap and, you know, find stuff and, and, and survive both you know off the land and 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 off the streets and so when i ended up getting into the special forces just as if some guys get into uh shooting and some guys get into martial arts for me survival was a a primary interest and after going to survival school i realized that they really didn't quite teach as much as i wanted to know and i felt that I should know. So I started pursuing that study a lot more. One thing led to another. And then I realized, man, you know, the, the things that 
you learn and study in survival are applicable to everyone, everywhere, no matter their age, sex, you know, education, position in life. So I was like, you know, this is a good equalizer. It's like combat is a great equalizer and so is survival. So I began teaching it as a way to get people to find their inner strengths and gain confidence, learn new skills and grow closer with everybody. Because when I tell people in survival the same way as it is for combat, when things are their worst or their darkest, you always ask yourself, why am I here? And when you think about, I'm here for the person or people that I love the most, then all of a sudden you find the strength to keep on going. And so from that, I ended up getting into TV by accident. I was running a survival school down in Costa Rica. One thing led to another. I ended up doing probably about 50 shows, really, before I ended up making Man, Woman, Wild. And so the whole concept was that I would take my wife out, and she's a very smart, very tough, wonderful lady, but you know she didn't have an expertise in that, but she had an interest. So it was a good way for me to go out and teach her and her to learn. And so the, the concept of the show, A, was pretty interesting because we are legitimately married. We just had our 14th anniversary. Congratulations. And, uh, thank you, brother. And then the other thing is she brought out things in me that I would not have thought of because I've studied this. I've done this. This is the way I do it. She'd be like, well, why do you do that? And I don't want to do that. Maybe this way is better. And a lot of times she'd bring up good questions and her way would be better. Not that mine was wrong, but her way was better and it was perhaps easier. So it, it really, I think, was a way that a lot of people could relate to the relationship. The simple problem solving you know, translates to everybody no matter where you are, whether you know, you're straight or gay or old or young or brother or sister or you know, married or, or just buddies. You know, it's like you have two people with a common set of problems and they might have an opposing view on how to get it done, but you got to work together because you both have a vested interest in a positive outcome, right? So that's really what the show was all about. And I think that's why it resonated with so many people. And, you know, we still get compliments on it today. And a lot of people say it really changed their lives. It got them and their families together to watch the show, to get out and go camping together, uh, get their significant others to go out in the woods when they weren't interested before. So when you, when you get blessed with that kind of opportunity and you hear that kind of feedback, it's probably the most the richest reward that you can ever hope for. That's awesome, man. You know, I saw a video not long ago. I know you're doing YouTube videos on survival and you had a bunch of uh, civilians on there and you're eating bugs. It was, it was really cool because, you know, to make people, I don't think your intent was to make them uncomfortable. You were there to tell them to look at everything from all different angles and the things around you, especially bugs can help you out of a situation. If you're hungry, you know, it was, yeah, what's going on with those videos? I know you've got more. Well, I mean, the, the the irony is, I mean, there's a lot of people out there on YouTube. I mean, hence YouTube. And literally, there's millions of people out there, and they, they like filming themselves and hearing themselves and seeing themselves. And frankly, <laughs> I really do not like to listen to myself or see myself. So it's like, ugh. So my YouTube channel isn't really a YouTube channel as much as it is kind of like my video storage closet, if you will. So I have, 
I don't know, well over a hundred videos from all different kinds of shows and little snippets of things I've done. Some things that aired, some things that didn't, some that were in the UK, some that were international. So um, I do have a channel. It does have a bunch of junk on it, but no, I'm not really making videos for YouTube per se at this point in time. The video that you're referencing was just a neat thing. Netflix reached out to me and asked me to teach the cast of a new series that they have out with uh I don't know if you know what uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, Ferris Bueller. Oh yeah, so, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So from our generation, that was you know a, an awesome movie. So I was a fan. So I was tickled to get to teach Matthew and some of the younger cast from this Netflix show called Daybreak. So that's all that was. I actually spent a day training them, and of course they narrow it down to just you know a few minutes of video. And it's the traditional thing, just like when uh, Ruth and I did uh, ABC's The Bachelor last year. We spent a whole day in the mountains, in the snow, teaching these 14 girls all about survival. And about the only thing they end showing is the bug eating because that's the most gross to the American mind. <laughs> so that's what they show. Just, you know, because it is TV and at the end of the day, they're, they're trying to get ratings and trying to get viewers and people talking. So they usually, just like with our survival shows, the hard work that we do, normally all of that would get cut out and they'd narrow it down to just the what they would consider the exciting moments. And I'd be like, really, guys? really <laughs> so yes yeah, so that was what the bug thing was man it was just the uh the titillation of seeing the uh the young kids and the big stars eat some bugs but awesome awesome of them they all did they they tucked right in and it was pretty cool so i like to think i left them with some good knowledge and uh not sure that they would have needed it on the show but nonetheless you know my primary job in life i believe is as a teacher and they definitely learned some good stuff <laughs> it was fun to watch and I, I know exactly what you mean about the good stuff sometimes uh getting cut out it's all good stuff but you know what i mean you know one of the things michael that when something happens over here in the states you know the first question that people ask is, is he or was she a veteran and there seems to be in some circles pervasive at times that that veterans especially combat veterans may be broken and you're anything but broken you've you've been able to adapt and overcome it's so cliche right but what what do you want the civilian population to know about veterans and especially combat veterans you mentioned it a little bit before but give us a little bit more detail from your viewpoint well i mean just like with with all my survival stuff i think what people see that they like like leanne had mentioned is because I legitimately believe in it with all my heart. I'm passionate about the subject. I want to help people. I want to teach them. I want to, you know, in some way contribute to making their lives a little bit better. And so the thing about veterans, you got to remember, there's, there's, there's all kinds of veterans. You know, there's the different branches. There's the different jobs. There's people who sign up to be clerks and, and truck drivers. And then people who sign up to be fighters, people who sign up to be the uh, lifesavers, uh, the support people. So, you know, first and foremost is that they all sign up to serve. That That's the first thing. Secondly, you have to kind of step and say, okay, what was their job? And how long did they serve? And then what was their experience? I mean, some people get deployed and they get fortunate or, you know, some of the warfighters might say unfortunate that it's a calmer period during their rotation. Some people get deployed and it's like a very uh, hot time, like say 2006, the Fallujah fighting that was going on, right? Or the very initial days of 2001, um, you know, so there's always these cycles of the war fighting. And so the biggest thing is, 
and and then another factor people got to consider is is age you know when when a nice young 17 year old joins the military i mean they're really they're they're certainly they're an adult okay so they can join and they can serve but there's still there's a lot of maturing that goes on between you know 17 and 30 right so I always tell people, you know, the first thing to remember about every single veteran is that they volunteered to serve. We don't have a nation of conscription, at least not right now. And that means something that they volunteered and that they served means that they care and they were willing to make a sacrifice. So, you know, and I think most Americans view veterans with a certain amount of uh, respect, veneration for that very fact. However, there are some people and and it doesn't matter if they're veteran or not. There's just always going to be that 10% of people that are just not good people that are going to do wrong or take advantage or try to exploit or, or just be bad. So, you know, you can't judge all veterans because some are like that. And then you got to remember some that, that, you know, life is, life is a journey, right? So you're going to meet some people when they're in a really good place in their life and some people when they're in a really bad place in their life. And that is not the whole person. So what I say to the people out there about the veterans is just remember that they served, remember that they cared, remember that they were ready to sacrifice. And you're going to find different kinds of veterans, just like you find different kinds of civilians. And the main thing is look at who they are, where they are, what they're doing. And if you think that they're hurting, try to help. And if you think that they're being bad, try to understand and guide. And if they're being good, then reward you know if nothing else with just a handshake or or friendship or or just niceness and i think that's something in today's world it seems like a lot of people think being uh irreverent or being disrespectful or not caring is somehow cool and i'm like guys you know one day you kids are going to be old too and imagine if this is what you're teaching the younger kids how much more disrespectful they're going to be when you're old and one day lord willing if you live long enough, if you earn it or you survive it, you know, you too might be wearing diapers or old and crusty and a little walker. And how would you feel if some kid just walked up and slapped you and was disrespectful, even though you maybe served 30 years or something, whether it's as a cop or a military or a doctor? And it's like, so I just, I remind people all the time, you know, John, that basically veterans are just people too. And that's it. And that's all. Well, it couldn't be any more succinct than that. And you definitely pointed out a lot of different. <laughs> I know lot- that was succinct. I would say that was rather loquacious. No, but- no, no, no. It was succinct, man, because you wrapped it up. But I mean, you couldn't, I mean, all those perspectives you put into one people, you know, it's about people and, and it couldn't yes. be any, any more right than that. You know, looking back on your military, would you do it all over again? Yeah, I, I absolutely would. Um, I'll be straight up, man. I, I don't miss it, but. <laughs> I wouldn't change anything either. You know, where do you see yourself in five years? Well, you know, my wife and son and I have been through a fairly rough time with, uh, you know, the network and there was a big issue there standing up against stolen valor and, and you know, lies and, and forgery and fraud and, and that kind of a thing. So, you know, at this point in time, we just want to have a simple life, man, you know, to be able to help people, watch our our children and grandchildren grow, spend time with our friends and family, you know, actually not really lofty goals or anything really haughty, just a nice, simple life. So uh, Lord willing, five years from now, I won't 
you know, be working in a war zone. I will be with my family and I'll be out there just trying to do good in, in society and my little community. And that's really about all I ask for. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Michael, do you have a personal mantra? Do you have your own quote about how you live your life every day? Absolutely, man. And, and, it, and it's so cliche. I just say, you know, every day is a gift. You know, I'm thankful every single day when I open my eyes, I thank God for everything, the good and the bad. I pray that I can be a better person, make the most of each day, do as much good as I can. And I will not quit until he takes me. And until then, I'm just thankful for the gift of another day every day. And that's it. Yeah, I couldn't give you more support than that. You know, that it is. It's all about each day and how we take each day. You know, when you think of freedom, what does it mean to you? Ah, no, that, that, <laughs> I could make that into a political subject, uh, and I think I will, in fact, traipse a little bit in that direction. To me, freedom is about being able to be who you really feel that you are, to do as best as you possibly can, and to not live in fear in, in any way from anyone and anything. Now, I absolutely do not believe in anyone's right to cause harm to anyone else. But outside of that, I think it's important to feel truly free is freedom of speech, you know, freedom of actions, freedom of movement, all of these things that are part of the American way that a lot of countries do not have. And I would say in our current times that there's a lot of hostility between uh, groups in America. And it makes me sad because it's like, look, you know, just because I don't agree with your opinion, with your religion, with your politics, it doesn't mean that you're still not a fellow American, that you're still not my brother and sister. So I just try to remind everybody that, hey, you know, we live in a country with a very amazing and awe-inspiring statement of what we believe. And it's very simple. It's united we stand and then remember the rest. So I tell people, hey guys, you know, let someone express themselves without animosity, without hostility, and just say, okay, I hear you. I might not agree, but that's okay. That's what makes our country great. To me, that's what real freedom is to be able to just be who you want to be, believe in what you believe, say what you want to say, do what you want to do. And, and not be encumbered by any constraints or fear. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. I mean, it's, that's what America's all about. And you're so right. We've become polar more recently, I think, at times than I've seen in the past. But, uh, but you're so right, Michael. I mean, we, we have so many great gifts, what you just mentioned, you know, so I can take a little bit of your wisdom here. So many gifts to be grateful for. And, and, and one of them is, the, you know, the freedom to do what you just described. And, and, and why, why have animus towards anybody else for trying to live their life? That's what people lay down their lives for. Yeah, I get it. You know, so if people want to continue to, to uh, you know, follow you and your movements and what you're doing, well, maybe not exactly every movement, but, you know, how can they find out more information about Michael Hawk? Well, I mean, you know, I've, I've got all the usual suspects as far as, you know, Face Crook and Tweety Bird and Instagram and, you know, and a website and all that kind of thing. I'm supposed to be doing something pretty cool here in the near future with uh, 
Liam Helmsworth, uh, if that all comes to pass, that'll be good fun. And, and there's a lot of other really cool things in the works, which you know I won't get into yet because I like to kind of keep them until I, they actually are real before I put them out. But there are a lot of very cool things going on. You know what? We've got the, the new uh, family survival book that came out this year. And then uh, this summer, there's a, a new Wild Edibles in North America book that's coming out. What's the children's book? What's the name of that one? Well, it's just a family survival guide, but it's it's Ruth and myself and our son and our friends and our family. Uh, and it's just a great book for parents to teach kids of all different types of ages the things that they need to know to survive, say, if they got lost or separated in some way. And we're really, really tickled with that book. And like I said, I'm really excited about the Wild Edible book coming out. I personally don't think there's been a a wild edibles book that's as good as this one coming out. It's and that's a strong statement. As as well as you know, they re-released my best-selling uh, universal survival or language guide, so you can learn pretty much any language in a week with this dang thing. And it's re-released because there's so much new technology out there for people. So, you know, there's lots of good things going on and, and, and Lord willing, there'll be many more and we'll be sharing them. And like you said, if they want to come follow me on a Facebook or something like that, they can keep up with those things. So it's michaelhawk.com. Yeah, that's the, probably the safest, easiest way to go. And then they can link out to everything from there. Well, appreciate that, Michael. I know that, uh, you know, I haven't really said this, but Michael's been behind the scenes a lot on the projects that we've been doing at Straight Out of Combat and Green Zone Hero and also Task Force N. Uh, you've been an inspiration, but you've also been able to help me a lot with some of the technical videos that we've done. And I just want to let you know here live that we appreciate that. And, and, and we just, uh, we're just happy to have you in our network. And uh, we know that you're doing great things to help people. And that makes it all worthwhile. Well, John, I mean, frankly, I'm only helping because I believe in what you're doing. What you're doing is a wonderful thing, both for the veterans and for the country. So, yeah, man, that's why I'm here. It's not uh, for any other reason other than your your vision is is a wonderful thing. And I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. So thanks. Well, thank you, Michael. Y'all check out Hero. I wasn't asking for that, but but it's but thank you, Michael, for that. And and you know, all I can do is you know wish you Godspeed. Be safe. Make contact with us when you come back stateside. You know, when you have a little bit of time away from the family or whatnot. And you know, we're looking forward to the future. And uh, all I can say is thank you for being on our show today. And uh, I appreciate you, man. All right, John. Thank you, and take care to you and all those out there listening. God bless. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. down